You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. You can find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Well, good morning, LifeGate Church. What a joy to be here together with you. I, I, I was here once before uh, on a Sunday morning, uh, but it's been a few years. Uh, so I see some new faces that, uh, that I haven't met yet. So I do hope to meet you after the service. Uh, it is such a privilege and an honor uh, to stand here among you today with you saints. Uh, one of the things I love about our partnership in Sovereign Grace is that when I visit with other churches like you, dear saints, it is a lot like a family reunion. I come in and I see dear friends like Josh and Amanda, who we've known since before any of their kids were born or grew up taller than me, um, Noah, and, um, and then other saints like Bob and Cindy, Jack and Deborah, uh, Sue, and, uh, and many others that I've known for a number of years as well as saints that, uh, that I haven't known as long, uh, but I, I met or I saw Elaine this morning who uh, we served together after Hurricane Harvey hit Houston. We went to serve one of our sister churches there, uh, cleaning up, tearing out sheetrock, and, and helping people in their community, uh, as well as you, your church serves us in our region by hosting the youth retreat every year, and that is something that our entire region benefits from. The youth of our region in my church, and in this church, in Mission City, and Christ Church Conroe, Sovereign Grace Pearland, Sovereign Grace Midland, uh, we all benefit because you so generously host that and serve us so well in that. In fact, speaking of serving, I, I'm, I'm noting a, a consistent theme of food uh, in this church. So I hear Bob and Cindy hosting soup and psalms. Uh, I hear that y'all had a, uh, that the men had a great time of fellowship this weekend, uh, that I heard that there was a lot of good food being served there as well. And nine years ago, before our church was planted, uh, you guys had us in, we came and worshiped with y'all, and y'all literally killed the, the fattened calf for us and roasted a pig over an open fire and served as delicious pork for lunch. Uh, so we're so grateful for this partnership that we enjoy because it is the case that our church, Redemption Hill, would not exist apart from that partnership, apart from our partnership in Sovereign Grace, apart from your sacrificial and generous giving, uh, we wouldn't exist. Our church exists because there were funds that were given by your church and many others, uh, and there was support given, and there was encouragement given, and there was prayers uh, that have been prayed for a long time that brought our church into existence uh, where we planted nine years ago now. And we're very grateful for that. We're very grateful. We realize that we have benefited from each of you uh, in numerous ways, and we continue to as well. In fact, Josh asked uh, me to give a, a quick update on the church. So I do want to greet you on behalf of Redemption Hill. Uh, these, those saints there this morning are praying for you just as you're praying for us, and we're very grateful for that. Uh, I, I greet you on behalf of Everett and Stacy Ender, uh, who are married on this very stage, barefoot, I seem to recall. Um, this is not, a bit unusual. I'm not sure if that's a tradition here in Seguin. Uh, it's, it's new to us, uh, but, uh, but them as well as all the other saints. Uh, so it's been nine years now. We're very grateful that the Lord has been so kind and so generous to us all these nine years. We meet every week in a, in a uh, temporary location. So right now we're meeting in a middle school. So every Sunday, I was a bit jealous this morning. I drove in, I see the great sign out front, and I arrive into your nice parking lot, and I see your buildings, and I come in here, chairs are already set up 
Every Sunday, we're doing that uh, over and over and over again. And it's a lot of work, but we've got a, a number of dear saints who do that every week. And God has been kind to us. In fact, just last year, uh, we got to a place where the, due to some of the COVID situations and the uh, different things in the government, the school has just indicated to us they're not sure how long we'll be able to meet in their public facility. Uh, and our church is of the size that we can't just meet in homes anymore. Uh, so we started a building project. We call it the Generations Project. Because like you, we want to see the gospel transferred from one generation to another. I just love the visual demonstration that this church is of that. Bob Odom having planted this church uh, 40 years? How many years? 40 years ago. And now handing this church off, seeing lots of newer faces and younger faces, and handing off to a younger pastor. He's not much younger anymore. I mean, he's, you know, he's getting older every time I see him. Uh, thought about you as we were singing that song about the Lord sovereignly commanding our hairs and, and all those things. Um, I'm right there with you. There, my, my hair is grayer every time I come in and, and, and sparser. But we want to see the gospel transferred from one generation to the next as my hair falls out, as, as I grow older, as John gets older. We want to see a younger man step into that pulpit as well. And so we're calling this project the Generations Project. We started that and we asked our church to uh, to consider what they could give to that. And it was a, uh, the number that they said that they could give was a very generous number. It was, it was a fairly modest number in terms of what it costs to build, especially on the north side of Austin. Uh, but the Lord has met us. The Lord took our modest number and multiplied it lots. I don't even, I don't even know how many percentage over he did, but he has shocked us by some anonymous gifts. In fact, if you're the anonymous donor in this room, feel free to come say hi to me this morning. I'd love to shake your hand and give you a big bear hug uh, because we have just been, we have fallen over ourselves in God's kindness to us and his generosity to us. And so now we have brought on a third pastor. Uh, well, we had a third pastor, Bart Lipscomb, who you know is now in Christ Church Conroe, uh, the church that we had adopted together as a region last year. Uh, but now we've, we've got Ken Mellinger, as Josh, uh, as Josh mentioned earlier, and he is overseeing this project, and we're, we're just praying for the Lord's provision. Even though we've got uh, some wonderfully generous provision from the Lord, the, the numbers continue to outpace uh, our bank account, which just keeps us in a good place of dependence upon the Lord. You know, if it was up to me, I would love it if we just had enough money in the bank account to just make it happen and say, there, it's done. And yet the Lord has sovereignly said, no, I want you to continue to be dependent on me. Continue to recognize your need, just like we all do in our families, in our church. Uh, but we're very, very grateful for this. So church, thank you for the way that you live out your faith. Thank you for the way that you serve here in this local church. Thank you for the way that you support your pastors and fellow members. Thank you for the way that you display the love and the glory of Christ in your lives. It is because of that, it is because of your labors, because of your sacrificial giving, that churches like ours exist, that churches like Mission City Fellowship exist, and, and by God's grace that more churches will be planted and strengthened for the glory of God. So church, please receive my gratefulness and our affection on behalf of Redemption Hill for who you are. Now, let's look at God's Word together. Acts chapter 16, we'll be looking at uh, the book of Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 34 this morning. Please turn there with me. 
The book of Acts is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I have five sons. I brought my son Silas with me this morning. He's my middle son. Um, and we, having five sons, we read a lot of adventure story Bibles and things like that. And the, the book of Acts never fails to deliver because it's very exciting. There, we see theology in action. We read about mass conversions. We read about people being raised from the dead. And it continues this morning, what we will read in chapter 16, about exorcisms and earthquakes and evangelism. Very exciting stuff. Before we turn there, or before we read, let me pray one final time for the Lord's blessing upon our time together. Father, we gather this morning as your people. Your people who have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Not one of us, Lord, have merited your favor. We don't earn your love. Rather, Lord, as we sang this morning, we have been benefactors of, or beneficiaries of grace. But we have received from you and we continue to receive from you. And so we pray that final song that you would speak, O oh Lord. Please nourish and strengthen us and send us out as your people filled with gratefulness for your grace in our lives and filled with faith for what you call us to in this world. We pray that you'd speak to us now. Open our eyes and warm our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Please follow along as I'm going to read from the book of Acts, chapter 16, starting in verse 11. As a reminder, this is God's Holy and authoritative word. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who is a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. 
having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. May God bless the preaching and the hearing of his word. We don't have, in our, in our church uh, tradition to this point, we don't have Sunday school the way you do. I, I enjoyed just hearing a, a, a quick uh, summary from Bob this morning of what's going on in, in your Sunday school. But as I teach my sons how to read the Bible, I teach them that there are right ways to read the Bible and there are wrong ways to read the Bible. Uh, the wrong way to read the Bible, especially texts like this, is to read the text without engaging your imagination. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean to imagine things that aren't there. That would be heresy. We don't do that. But rather, it means that you sit down and read a section from Scripture, and then after you're done, you close your Bible. You, you don't <laughs> close your Bible and simply say, "Well, that was interesting," and then move about your day. God is not described as interesting, 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 but rather holy, holy, holy. And that means that when we come to uh, our text and use our imaginations, we want to imagine um, ourselves in that moment in such a way that we can smell it and feel it and, and let the text shape us and frame how we should live and teach us about what's true about God. When I finish my Bible reading every day, I feel like I can run through a brick wall. I feel like I can, when, when I sing songs like we sang this morning, when we rehearse truths to nourish our souls in times of suffering, I feel like I can hold out hope for another day. When I read texts that energize my faith, I feel like I can go on and, and live a faithful life, serving my family, walking on water, and taking on the world, and I'm filled with joy and gratefulness. That's what I mean when I teach my kids about using your imagination, feel the text. I want you to taste it and see it and see that the Lord is good. And that's the effect that this passage should have on us this morning. In this passage, we read about the unstoppable power of the gospel in three different stories. We read about the gospel overcoming social and ethnic and economic barriers. We see this in different conversion stories, each one being unique. And in the process this morning, I think that we'll learn some things about God as well as about ourselves. And more than that, I'm praying that God stirs our affections freshly with joy and, uh, for, and gratefulness for the grace that we've received and that He will strengthen our faith for the work that He calls us to in this world. So three conversions, this, 
three conversion stories this morning, three portraits that we're going to see the unstoppable power of the gospel at work. So first, we see the portrait of the gospel for the religious. This is the first portrait we're looking at, is the gospel coming to Lydia. So who who is this woman, Lydia? Look down at verse 11, and you just kind of track along the page here. What we know about Lydia is we see here, is we see that she is a religious woman. We see that she is a moral lady. She has done very well for herself in the marketplace. She's a businesswoman. She's from Thyatira, which is a massive port city in the ancient world, and she's now in Philippi. It might be helpful for us to compare. If we use our imaginations here, it'd be helpful to think of like New York and London, Paris, important cities around the world. This is who Lydia is. That's, that's where she's from. That's where she lives. Cities that shape the economic force and the cultural influence of the world. We know that she's religious. She, it says here, uh, we can read that she has rejected Roman paganism. She is worshiping God. She says there are not a bunch of gods. There is one God. And I think these Jews are onto something. She is attending their, their uh, Bible study. She is morally conservative, upright. Here she is at this Jewish Bible study, basically. And come, here comes Paul. Paul get, begins to speak. What does it say here? It says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said. Her heart is open. She hears Paul. She confesses faith and she is baptized. What you have here is a wealthy businesswoman who is extremely successful, who is moral and religious, and she's at church, but she's not necessarily a follower of Christ at this point. She's morally upright. You would look at her and think, this woman doesn't necessarily need for anything. She looks like she has her act together. Maybe she could teach me a thing or two. And yet she is leaning in to the teaching of the gospel and saying, I need that. And now we see her committing herself to following the Lord. It's in this place where she is as a morally upright person, as a conservative, uh, God-worshipping person, that God sovereignly steps in and He saves her in her moral goodness, in her worldly success. God saves her. And just such, a, such as uh, were some of us, weren't we? So not all of us come from some terribly broken background. Not all of us have this testimony of being rescued out of jail or anything like that. But we were decently good people. Some of us grew up in church and we were morally good and successful in the world. And that's where Jesus found us. We would have defined ourselves as Christians, perhaps. We would have saw ourselves in comparison to others and think, well, I'm better than that guy. I'm a pretty good person. Then in the middle of that, Jesus saved you and me. He opened our eyes. There was a turn that there was no longer just being church folk to all of a sudden saying, my whole life is about him. Here's my life, Lord. Take it. Shape it. Use it for your purposes. Many of us have that testimony this morning. And I know many, many of us know people just like that in our world. Many of us work with people like that. We live among people. Our neighbors are like that. We see people like that at the coffee shop and the grocery store. And we, we think, how can I convince this person of their need for the Lord? What this text shows us here, what this story about Lydia shows us, is it should kindle fresh joy for what the Lord has done in our lives, firstly, that the Lord's rescued us just like he rescued Lydia, and it should also fuel our faith that the Lord continues to do that today. You just look around this room and you see people that were rescued out of this kind of moral goodness in their lives and open their eyes to the Lord. 
So that's the first portrait, the, the gospel for the religious. Secondly, we see the gospel for the oppressed. Keep, keep moving on to verse 16 here. We see another woman that encounters the gospel. We see a, a, another woman that has nothing in common with the first. This is interesting. This is intentional. When Luke put together his account, he intentionally put together three stories, three portraits of the gospel encountering three very different people. So first you have this religious woman, Lydia, this wealthy woman. And next you have this, this woman here who is possessed by a demon. She is a slave girl with a spirit of divination who, she's a slave. She's owned by people who are using her to make money. She's, she's, you know, she is being oppressed here. And, and it's, it's a bit of confusing uh, text because if we read it straight, it looks like she's actually attesting to the truth of what Paul is preaching. Well, what's wrong with that? Why is she being rebuked for that? Why is, why is Paul annoyed? Why is Paul greatly annoyed by this woman who's basically saying, Amen! Amen! Listen to these guys. They're teaching the way of salvation. Well, actually, what she's doing here is she's mocking them. She's following along, and she, you, you can imagine her doing like a sing-song kind of uh, paraphrase of their gospel presentation in mockery. And she's being a distraction to the furthering of the gospel. In fact, she's not trying to support, but rather distract. And so Paul finally has enough. He gets greatly annoyed. He's fed up. He turns to her. The Bible says he turns and he casts out the demon. And what happens? Away it goes. Right away, just like that. He tells the demon to leave, and the demon leaves. Her owners have realized that the spirits have been cast out. They can no longer make any money from her. And it appears that something, to use the words of Matthew 12, it looks like the house has been cleaned out and something else has entered in now. Now, if I were to ask you about the first portrait, how many of us can identify with Lydia? You know, we come from a morally upright, conservative home. Uh, we grew up going to church. So I bet a number of hands around the room would go up. But if, I wonder how many hands would go up if I asked you how many of you were demon-possessed fortune tellers who happened to be slaves. Probably not a lot of us. Probably not, probably not many of us. Maybe not anybody in this room. But this contrast of these two personalities is meant to show the grasp of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the unstoppable nature of the gospel that can rescue the morally upright and good and the wicked, oppressed, demon-possessed people as well. So maybe, maybe what's going on here is that it's, it's simply the demon possession, but that's not really, that's not the extent of her issue here. Whether it's by her own steps that led her to that point or by the force of others, maybe she, she was just abused um, throughout her life. But she, at this point, has given herself over to a type of licentiousness and depravity that has now consumed her life. I love that this story is right after Lydia's because it is, it is so radically different. Lydia is put together. She's wealthy. She's successful. She is respectable. She's brilliant. She's savvy. She is well known. Jesus steps into her mess and saves her. Then right after that, you have this girl who is completely messed up, taken advantage of, abused, given herself over to a life of sin. Jesus steps into her world as well. There's not one type of person that the Lord saves. We all need his grace. The wealthy among us, the poor among us the respectable and the respectless people among us. We all need his grace. Some of us, maybe we do relate more to this slave girl. Maybe we come and we think about Lydia, this wealthy, successful, respectable person, 
and, and we just can't relate. But this slave girl gives us hope because we know what it's like to be harassed. We know the pain of abuse. We know brokenness and sadness and, and hopelessness at times. And, and this story encourages us as well. For some of us, God met us in the middle of just some of the most horrific, dark things that we can imagine. And God stepped into that dark place. He opened our eyes to the beauty of Jesus. And that's where He rescued us. In the middle of addiction, in the middle of brokenness, in the, in the aftermath of a, of a bitter divorce, all kinds of terrible things. And you are here today and you've been given new life in Christ, ransomed from the kingdom of darkness, having your sins forgiven, robed with the cloak of righteousness, filled with the Holy Spirit, called children of God. That is glorious, brothers and sisters. And that is worth filling our hearts with gratefulness and joy and letting that perfume everything about us, that we would be the most joyful, grateful people in this world, that we have tasted that amazing grace of the Lord. But maybe others come to mind right now that you know in your life as well. People that you work with and you, and you just speculate, I think they're high right now. Maybe, maybe it's your neighbor. Uh, yesterday I was talking to one of my neighbors about there's a, another house on our street that's a party house. And you know, there are party limos that show up and 15 people jump out and go into this house and party all night, keeping the neighbors awake. And we all think, goodness gracious, I'm, I am greatly annoyed. I can identify with Paul in this respect. I am greatly annoyed at two o'clock in the morning, and I think my, my thoughts don't go to preaching the gospel to them. There is no way the Lord's going to reach these people. And yet, we, we know people like this all around us. People that have stories like us and people that have stories unlike us. And it's, that, it's for them, too, that this story is intended to fuel our faith that the gospel can reach. So that's the second portrait, the gospel, uh, the, what, what I call it, gospel for the religious, the gospel for the oppressed. And lastly, uh, the third portrait, the gospel for the worldly. Look down at verse 27. What ends up happening here as Paul and Silas are thrown into prison is that they're brought before these rulers and the rulers decide to put them in jail. The jailer doesn't just put them in jail. Notice that they say, put them in jail and keep them safely. Back in verse 23. And then it says in verse 24, having received this order, he goes further than simply putting them in jail. He puts them into the inner prison and he fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, it's not immediately obvious from reading this, but as you read backgrounds, as I read smarter guys than me who write big commentaries on this book, they talk about what this represented, what the inner prison was. They put them in the innermost cell. And this jailer, he, go, he doesn't just put them in jail and put them safely. He puts them in the innermost cell and then he puts them in stocks and chains. Now, I read that the innermost part of a prison in the first century in ancient Rome would be a part that was a little bit lower than the rest of the cells. So what would happen there? As it's lower, and as they're in prisons, uh, they didn't have standards that they had to you know, make sure that they were taking care of their prisoners uh, the way that we do in this country. And so what would happen is if somebody needed to uh, go to the bathroom or something, oftentimes it would just happen right there. And because this innermost cell was lower than the rest, anything that was on the floor would, would stream down into that innermost cell. So you can imagine the kind of smell. You can imagine the kind of putrid. You can imagine the kind of 
darkness and, and horror that you would encounter by, by sleeping there and living there. This was, this was punishment. And it was detestable. You can just imagine how it was like to be there. And further than that, they put them in stocks. It wasn't enough to put them in jail and put them in the innermost cell, but they went further and put them in stocks like they were some violent criminals. Stocks are forcing you to be in a position that your body doesn't naturally want to be in. You're sitting there and it stinks and your body is being stretched and contorted in ways that it was not meant to be. This jailer didn't do this because he was ordered to, but because he wanted to. He, you, you get the sense that he had some kind of sadistic desire to punish and to make them really hate their life. Now, historically speaking, in, in major metropolitan areas like, uh, like Philippi, jailers in these jails were almost always highly decorated former military soldiers who, as a gift of retirement from serving on the front lines, were given these jails to run. Now, a couple of things. Rome is not known for handing out daisies and stickers to people. Rather, they were a brutal, tyrannical regime. In fact, historically speaking, there are records of multiple cities being sacked and completely destroyed. And so as a deterrent from any type of rebellion, there are a couple of places in the history where we actually read that the Romans crucified up to 20,000 people at a time. You think about that. They would line men, women, and children alongside roads leading into the city so that if you lived in the outskirts, you would come into the city, you would, you would see what was going on, and if you had any thought of rebelling against the Roman authorities, that would be quickly dismissed as you walked by these ghastly, horrifying sights. So they're not sweet people. We don't know this jailer's background exactly, but we do know what he had been a part of. Historically speaking, men who see grotesque things, they come back and, they're, and, they're, and they struggle with that, with, with displaying those in their lives as well. They, we see this in our world today, men who go to war. When my dad came back from Iraq, he was a different man. He had seen things that were, that were hard, things that he just didn't speak of. And, they, and, and oftentimes, sometimes people come back and there's a type of bitterness and anger over what we've seen in the world. And it affects us, and it informs and it shapes the way that we interact with others with suspicion and anger. But what we see evident in this jailer's life, how he responds to these simple orders of put them in jail by instead torturing and belittling Paul and Silas, is that there is some element of bitterness and anger and violence going on here. And so how does God interact with, with this man? we see once again, God steps into his mess. He steps into his darkness. Jesus steps in and saves. And some of us can relate to that as well. And we, some of us do come from that kind of broken, bitter, angry background. Some of us had things happen to us early in life that have, that have shaped us and that have made us jaded and angry. We didn't want to own the things that we did. It wasn't our fault that we did those things. It was, the, it was the way that we were raised. That's what caused the anger to grow in us, we think. That's what caused the bitterness to fester inside of us. And yet God stepped in to our lives and saved us from that as well. God's ransom and rescue of us in these lives, in these messy places, He keeps calling us. He keeps 
ransoming us. He keeps saving us and delivering us and sanctifying us and using us. God's ransom of his people, his rescue of us, is meant to, to shape us and, to, and then to use us as his ambassadors. You think about how many times we see throughout the book of Acts and throughout the Gospels and throughout all of the Scriptures, God ransoming messy, broken people and then deploying them in ministry. You think about the man who, who is also demon-possessed and had those delivered, and then Jesus commissioned him and said, go and tell everyone what has happened for you. It's a beautiful thing to watch God save people. So Paul and Silas sat in jail with their, with their feet in stocks, so stretched apart that it was almost unbearable, and yet they sat and they prayed and they, they sang. Can you imagine this? I mean, I'd be sitting there feeling sorry for myself, sitting there trying to find a way to get word out for my deliverance. And they sat there, and they did what we did this morning. They meditated on the mercy of God at work in their life. They considered it an honor to be persecuted on account of Christ. And so they sat there, they prayed, and they sang because they knew that their God sovereignly ruled over the entire universe. They knew that he had numbered the hairs on their head. They knew that God had had them exactly where they needed to be, and so they did not despair. They weren't worried. They sat there in this difficult, bitter moment, being harassed and persecuted, and they rejoiced in the midst of their suffering. They didn't curse others. They didn't say, you just wait until you get what's coming to you. They didn't wallow in self-pity, but they worshiped their God who providentially places his people right where they need to be for the advance of the gospel. And then God sends an earthquake. Now you've got to love, this, this is where my boys love these stories. When God, when, when you see Elijah call down fire from heaven and display his power, and here you think you're Paul and Silas praying for God to do something, and he sends an earthquake in deafening confirmation that I am with you, and I will deliver you, and I am not bound in any way. And the jailers and everyone else saw this as an act of God. And what what so encourages me in this is that when we take steps of obedience to share the gospel with us, like Paul and Silas, they were preaching in this prison, they were rejoicing, they were praying and singing in this prison, and we see that God goes with us. He is with us in power. The same power that we see there is available to you and I today. If he needs the earth to shake in order to advance the gospel, he will shake the earth. If he needs the cell to be opened, he will open the cell. If he needs uh, for our church to have land, he will provide the land. We need not fret. We need not worry. If he needs that diagnosis to go away, he can make it go away, just like we see Paul uh, command the demon to leave this, this slave girl's life. God is not bound in any way. He will do whatever is necessary to advance his gospel, and his sovereign plan, brothers and sisters, is to use you, to use you and me, broken, weak vessels, jars of clay, ransom sinners to proclaim his glory to others. So they are proclaiming the earthquake happens, and how does the jailer respond? He responds in verse 30, in fear. He responds, he knows that he is going to have to give an answer for how everyone got out because the earthquake happens, the doors are open, they're able to escape. He comes out and gets ready to cut himself with his sword. And instead, Paul intervenes. Paul intervenes and says, do not fear. We're all here. It's okay. Do not harm yourself. He doesn't just kind of watch with glee. 
oh man, now he finally gets what's coming to him. No, he looks upon him in pity. This man who had persecuted him. You think of Jesus hanging up upon the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's meant to inform and shape how Paul should respond to those who persecute him. That's meant to inform and shape how you and I relate to others who persecute us in whatever form that takes. Those who mock us, we don't mock back. We respond by praying for the Lord to work in their lives the way we see here. And so drawn by the grace of a sovereign God, the jailer asked the only question that ultimately mattered. What must I do to be saved? When we hear people asking questions like that, you know that God is at work. And Paul answers him, verse 31 and 32, and says essentially, you don't have to do anything. What do you have to do? You need to believe what Christ has already done for you. Simply believe in Him and be saved. Believe that He is the Son of God. Come in the flesh in order to die the death that you deserve because of your sin. Believe that He died your death in your place to pay your penalty so that your sins could be washed away. Believe and be saved, he says. And then, again, brothers and sisters, this is our story. Saved by the grace of a sovereign God, simply by faith, simply by belief in the Son of God, you and I have been ransomed because of the obedient life and sacrificial death of His Son. That is grace. We do not deserve to stand here lifting our hands and singing to a holy God, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, Whether we had a great week or a terrible week, His righteousness has been imputed to us. So even even when we get into a fight on the way to church, we can stand here and and apologize to our spouse or to our kids or whoever it was that encountered our wrath in that moment, and then we can stand here washed clean, rejoicing over the grace that we have received. And that should fill us with joy. Every one of us We're like sheep who'd gone astray. Every one of us experienced the good shepherd coming after us. And we see in this story one who is mocking God, rescued out of her mockery. We see one who is filled with bitterness and anger, who uh, who is rescued by God. Jesus didn't just light him up for that, but he ransomed him with grace. We see this man who is so hopeless that he thought that the only way out was to kill himself. We, we know people like that. And Jesus looks upon this man and says, no, you belong to me. Your life has value and it is not over. And I'm going to change your life and give you, a, give you an eternity to look forward to. You are mine. And we see here that God can save anyone. That is the point of each of these three portraits is that He can save anyone. There is no one type of person who is predisposed to believe the gospel. There is no one type of person that can believe and other types that cannot believe. He rescues here Lydia, the wealthy businesswoman. He rescues the slave girl. He rescues the the worldly soldier, representing three different backgrounds of race and ethnicity and social class and economic worlds. There is no one, brothers and sisters, there is not a single person who you have ever encountered or ever will encounter, who is beyond the reach of God's mercy. There is nobody that He cannot save. That's your estranged father. That's your your angry atheist neighbor. That's That's your cousin who tells you that he's transitioning. That is your that's your boss who you know is taking advantage of your hours 
and not paying you a fair wage. That's your child who's been walking away from God for so long that you are tempted to give up hope that they will ever turn around and walk in the way that you taught them. He can save anyone. And he delights to do it. So here's two things that I'm praying that we walk away with today. Two points of application that I I pray every one of us leaves here today. Firstly, I am praying that as you read this text, as you consider these portraits, as you engage your imagination, as you put yourself here, as you identify in, in various ways with these individuals, that you are freshly reminded of your own conversion. Whether it happened when you were four years old or 45 years old, that you are reminded of how God met you, who told you the gospel. How did you come to faith? How did God open your eyes? And let that, let that reminder stay fresh in your mind. Let you never, I pray that you never, ever take that for granted and that that would result daily, every morning and every evening. God, thank you for your mercy at work in my life. While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act, but he rescued us in the midst of our mess. Hallelujah. God be praised. Let that fill us with joy, inexpressible joy that pervades and perfumes all of our lives and each of our relationships. Let people experience from us a grateful disposition and joy and faith for them, that we don't interact with others with suspicion or bitterness or this stodginess or this self-righteousness. Every one of us have benefited from grace and everyone that we encounter needs that same grace. So firstly, let that remind you of your conversion and fill you with joy. Secondly, I'm praying that as you see the power of God for all these different types of people, that your faith is filled to overflowing for God's power to save anyone in such a way that helps you overcome every single obstacle that the, that the devil, that our enemy Satan would ever throw our way. He loves to hinder and discourage evangelism. He, he will do anything to keep you from telling your neighbor or your coworker or the guy at the grocery store about Jesus. And, and often, the way what I see that he does today, uh, he does that a lot through simple fear of mockery. You know, a lot of times, we just, we, we're just nervous that it's going to frustrate the relationship or that people will mock us. And say, so you, you really believe this nonsense? This book is old. Uh, you believe it's, it seems archaic? And we say, I do. <laughs> I believe crazier things than you might believe. I believe that someone was actually raised from the dead. And I believe that God still does that today. So a lot of times that fear of mockery will hinder our desire to proclaim the gospel. It, it frustrates that. Many people might think that we're weak-minded, crazy fools. They think that they're smarter than us and that they're dialed in in a way that we never can be. And that's what I love about the way that we see God using simple people like fishermen and broken, angry soldiers and demon-possessed slave girls who are delivered, as well as the wealthy and the respectable among us. There's nobody that he can't reach. And that should fill us with faith to go and, and proclaim in hope that the Lord will do the same thing. And one, one of the things I just want to encourage you, especially parents in the room, one of the greatest things that we can do as parents is to prepare our children 
But what it means when Jesus says that if you are faithful to me, you will be hated by the world. A lot of times we, we don't, a lot of times, all the time, we don't like to be hated. We don't like it. We want to be liked. We want to be well thought. We want to be like Lydia, respectable and impressive. But the Lord doesn't ransom all the respectable. He uses the broken and the weak. He uses us, as, as Paul says, as jars of clay. In our weakness, that's where his power is on display. And so we want to help our kids and ourselves settle now that we will not always be loved by the world. We preach the gospel, and and the gospel is offensive. It says that every person in the world is broken and is in need of redemption. And a lot of us, you know, Lydia's story could have gone a different way, and she could have said, who are you to tell me? Look at me. What do I need? I'm successful, and I'm smart, and I'm savvy. And we're afraid of being looking foolish. So settle in your hearts now, brothers and sisters, that that the Lord has spoken to us, that the Lord has ransomed us, and that the Lord is about that today, and he deploys us as his ambassadors toward that end. And let that fill you with faith, and let it fuel your joy. Please pray with me now. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning. As we close our time, as we prepare our hearts again to sing, Lord, I pray that you would help every one of us to remember what was it like when I first believed, when I first felt the burden fall from my shoulders, when I first felt that the, the reality of forgiveness of sin, when I encountered the joy of the Lord Let that fill us with joy in a way that puts aside all fear of man, all fear of being ridiculed or being thought odd, but that we, like David, when the ark was brought back to the people of God, that we would dance for joy and that we would go out into this world telling everyone that will listen to us, our God reigns. So please fill us with joy, fuel our faith, and send us out as your people. We pray in Jesus' name.